Shalom, shalom, and welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. If someone comes to you and interprets a dream or gives you a prophecy which in the long run happens to come true, if if someone comes to you and performs a miracle right in front of your eyes, what would your reaction be? For the most part, people will fall head over heel when they witness or even hear such a thing. But what does the scriptures say about these phenomenon? What should we do when faced with these things? God himself answers our question. Right before the Israelites were to enter the land, the Lord knew that they will be under attack, spiritual attacks, for they were about to be trained to be the priestly nation. And so he clearly tells them that he is allowing these miracle workers and, and tellers of dreams to come to them to test them, to test them. He clearly told them and tells us that such things are not a proof of divine blessings. While it may at times be, the point is that the Lord is asking to test, to judge, for it is the same word, N not only the event, but the very person who performs these things. How do we do that? This is what our text in Deuteronomy chapter 13 is about to tell us. And the information contained in there are often repeated throughout the New Testament. And so I'm very excited to share with you this precious text. But before we do, as we usually do, we will uh, take a question that Sharon will read for us. By the way, I know that many of you have sent questions. I usually choose the answer uh, in relation to the subject matter we are treating. But know that your question has been read and will be treated soon. We are very familiar with the parable of the sower or as some of us might like to call it, the parable of the four types of soils. While we are quite sure that the first ground represents the heart of an unbeliever and the last ground represents the believer, where do we place the middle two conditions? They almost look like those who are sitting on the fence in terms of their faith. So into which camp do they fall? Thank you. Uh, this is a, a very important question since it is the first parable of the kingdom or of the era we are presently living. Contextually, we are at a point when the religious leaders have rejected the Messiah and so a new calendar is given. Since the messianic era will not be established right away, what will it look the, the, the era look like in the meantime? What follows are seven parables of the new kingdom that was to be established. These are prophetic illustrations or, or, of how this era would look like from this last uh, for this past uh, 2000 years and continuing on until the kingdom or the messianic age will be established at the second coming. The parable of the sower, the first one you, you are referring to, sets the present precedence concerning the spiritual condition and choices men and women will make during this period of time when they would be face to face with the offer of salvation. 
So the parable is given in Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9, and the explanation of the parable is given later in verses 18 to 23. I will sum up the parable for you. In this parable, the sower is Yeshua himself. The seed is the word of God, and the soils represent the condition uh, of the heart of men and women. And here we find four types of soils, or four general condition of the heart or soul of men. So the first one is a non-receptive soil at all, for the seed fell on the side of the field, and this gave the birds great opportunity to snatch it up and to devour it. We read that in verse 4, and he, he sowed some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate them up. And Jesus explains this parable in verse 19 or this soil. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and takes it away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed in by the wayside. This is what happens when we proclaim the word of God, the wicked, that is Satan and his demons will work very hard to remove it and here they succeed. The second group or condition of the heart is one which has not been worked properly on, let's say, or perhaps too difficult to dig out for it where there were many, many stones, and the seeds could not find room for its their roots, so it died. Jesus explains it by saying in verses 20 to 21, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Okay, the, the, these are the, the ones who initially give their lives to Yeshua without counting the cost. They thought that by accepting the Lord, they were entering the Garden of Eden without the serpent. Yet, because they are not rooted and grounded in the Word of God, when persecution arises, they cannot understand it and they just live. Now, but these are believers or are they not believers? Let's look at the third condition of the heart. This one describes the seeds which fell among the thorns. This, gr this ground was already laden with weeds spreading its own seeds like latent time bombs ready to uh, go off. What happens then is that the good seeds is choked up uh, and, you know, and it cannot grow. Yeshua explains it in verse 22. He says, Now he who received this, the, the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. This, representing, this is representing the third soil. It, it is a better soil, but here again, the weeds are sucking out all the in, in essential nutrients. Jesus speaks of the deceitfulness of riches, which chokes the word of God. Are these believers or non-believers, or are they both? Before we try to answer this question, let us look at the fourth ground and uh, where, where, where the response of the heart is a good one. Here the seed will grow as it should. Look at verse 23. But he 
who receive the seed on the good ground and he who hears the word and understands it he indeed bear fruits and produces some a hundredfold some sixty some thirty these are the ones who hear the word who takes it in who believe it and are so blessed in producing these many fruits which are fit for eternity so these four soils represents four conditions of the heart yet only one really produces great fruits the first we know speaks of not believers the last we, we we understand it speaks of believers now what about the two middle ones and this is where your question lies the the strange thing about strange thing about it is that when you read commentaries from sound men of God, they don't always agree. Some say that these two middle grounds correspond to believers, while others say they ca it cannot correspond to believers. Who do you think these two groups represent? Perhaps both both. A problem that often rises in congregations is that at some sad point believers and unbelievers are so much alike that we cannot differentiate them anymore. And it is not in fact our responsibility to, de to determine who is the believer and who is not. The fruits they produce will eventually expose their true identity. So then all these commentators are right in a sense for they see these two groups from different angles. Our response to these two middle groups should be based on our understanding of the next parable, the wheat and the tares. There Yeshua explains that in today's churches, you will find both believers and, and, believe, and believers side by side. Our responsibility again is to follow through with 1 Corinthians 13, which encourages us to, to, to believe all believe all so we start by believing everything so the second and third soil or condition of one's heart may also and very often does represent a passing stage for believers but in time we pray they come out of it and their fruits be exposed. There, there's so much more on, on, on this parable. If you desire to go further, you can go to our study <clears throat> on Matthew 13 on our website. If you desire the written text, you can ask for it. Now let us go to our study for today, Deuteronomy 13. The emphasis of Deuteronomy 12 was on the protection from the outside. We've, we've read how the Israelites were to destroy all memories of idolatry around them and how they had to have a place of worship, one place of worship, in order to minimize the spread <coughs> or the creation of idolatry. However, in Deuteronomy 13, the emphasis now shifts to the attacks from within the fold of Israel. Three warnings are given and each one points to a different group of people. The first group of people warned are the uh, false prophets and false teachers. The, this is covered in the first five verses. But the second group of people who are, are those who are dear to us, the family members who turn against God. How should we deal with them? This is found in verses 6 to eight. <clears throat> Let us remember, if there's an institution that God highly protects, it is the family. But if a member of a family entices others to turn away from God, or, and, and then he, he will actually destroy even the congregation or even the city or even the nation. 
The third group addressed in this portion of scriptures is not a family uh, member, but a whole city which could fall into apostasies. This is dealt in verses 12 to 18. And because of sin, God prescribed the destruction actually of this whole city to prevent them from infecting the rest of Israel. And so this progression <coughs> from verse 12 to 13 of Deuteronomy is typical of the attacks which comes from the evil one. He would usually start from the outside and proceeds to the inside and often attacks from both sides. As it was with the birth of the nation of Israel, so it, it, it was with the birth of the church. This is seen especially in the book of Acts, when the body of the Messiah was in formation and was very fragile, so it was attacked from both sides. At the beginning of the book of Acts, we see the church doing very well in the first three chapters. Until we reach chapter 4, no more was it in favor with all the people as it was before. <clears throat> this is where it all begins. The first persecution of the church in Acts 4 was from the outside, from the religious leaders as they began to lay hands on Peter and John. Then we see a second persecution of the church coming in Acts chapter 5, just like uh, what we have in Deuteronomy 13. The second persecution comes from people who were among them, that is, the brethren, among the brethren. It came first through Ananias and Sapphira, two people who belonged to the body of the Messiah, but they lied to God and so disturbed the growth of the church. God took them away. In chapter 6 of Acts, we see both kinds of attacks, one from within and one from without. The first attack was from within the congregation as there was a dispute between two groups of Jews, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hellenists complained, complained their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food especially. If this matter was not dealt with rapidly, it could have become disastrous for the young church. The other attack was from the outside, a much fiercer one, uh, as they grew in as they grew in intensity, it was against Stephen. Stephen, who uh, they ended up killing in Acts chapter seven. Satan may be loyal and consistent in his pattern of temptation, but greater is he that is inside us, right? As First John <coughs> four fourteen tells us. So again, we have nothing to fear. However, the scriptures exposes the schemes of the devil. And as it is in the first verse of Deuteronomy 13, we are, by the way, in page 13 of your handout, the handout that you can always download from our website, betariel.ca. Well, so we are at a point where Moses begins to denounce those very people that were amidst the people of God, the false teachers and false prophets, groups which never left Israel and you know what, never left the church either. See what he says from verses 1 to 4. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God 
<clears throat> with all your heart and with all your soul, and you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. See, these uh, divisive individuals will find their way into <clears throat> very godly congregations of God. They will do so by performing many signs and often many signs and miracles. And so many will be impressed, not re realizing that this is a test from God. Notice that God clearly says in verse 3, your God is testing you. And we, we are further told in verse 2 that their sins and miracles were actually real. They came to pass, God says, which tells us that a true miracle, whichever it is, is not a decisive criteria by which we may judge if a person is from God. There's so much more to it. What if someone comes to our congregation and performs a miracle, a miracle of healing, for instance? Or if someone comes and tells us about a dream and the dream comes true? What God is telling us here is that he is testing us to see if we're going to fall on the words of someone without testing or judging that person. When Moses went to see Pharaoh in order to impress him, he threw his sticks on the, on the ground and it became a snake. But so did Pharaoh's sorcerer. The devil had this capacity. In the story, Moses' snake swallowed the other. But for us who have no such sticks, how do we go about to test as the Lord asks us to? It is not that complicated, by the way. Moses tells us right in the same verse. Look at same verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. This is the answer. If they say, Let us go after other gods. That is, if one preaches a gospel, a truth different than the one that is in the scriptures, then it is not the right one. And the question is, how would you know that they, that they are saying, let us go after other gods, if you do not know who your God is? And how would you know your God if you do not know the scriptures? That's the point here. It is not for nothing that Jesus, Yeshua, is called the word of God. In Psalm 138, God says that he put his word above his name, bringing out the importance of the scriptures. To know God is to know the scriptures. However, what if this person appears to know his Bible very well, because many of them do, like, like the cults do. By, 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 but they know, of course, only a limited way. What do, you, do we do in the meantime? To know the word means also to live by the word. So the test really is to see if the person not only speaks according to the word of God, but if the person lives according to the word of God. Find out this person's life and see if it corresponds to the lives of prophets of God, like Isaiah or Paul or Moses. For like them, he puts himself or herself as a prophet of God. Today, it's not that difficult, by the way. The Internet reveals so many things about so many uh, of these false prophets and teachers. You can see their pedigree. You can see their, their curriculum vitae over there. Jesus said in Matthew seven eighteen, batteries do not bear good fruit. The, the, their lives then need to be scrutinized just like that of the elders 
or a pastor in a congregation. In the ancient Near East world, you know, the prophet was considered an ambassador of the gods, one who professed to speak for them. And so it should be today. And when these prophets or dreamers come to us with a message or a dream, what they are actually doing is they're playing God. That, that was, I believe, what underlined Jesus' complaint about the Pharisees whom he accused of taking God's place. In John 10, 34, Jesus answered them. He told them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. You know, they, they were not gods or Elohim at all. The passage that Jesus is referring to is in Psalm 82, which says, you are gods. Nevertheless, you will die like men. Okay, if they died like men, of course, they are not divine. The point is that these religious leaders took the place of God like false teachers and false prophets do today, even at the time of Moses and today. In the gospel, at the beginning of John 10, he calls them thieves and robbers because they do not enter through the door. That is through the set precepts of God. These are usurpers of the authority of God. They are replacing God. They made themselves into gods. And these false prophets have plagued, you know, the, the, the Israelites through their history, as the prophets tells us, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were especially known to mislead the people into believing things contrary to what the true prophets were saying, contrary to their prophecies. See, for instance, Ezekiel 13.10. There we read, because, even because they have seduced my people, saying peace, and there was no peace. They were misleading the people into closing their eyes to, to the prophecies of God and telling them that all is well, all will be good. This, by the way, will happen as well in the future as it is happening even today. As we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a, a woman with child, and they shall not escape. And it is already happening with all those who proclaim that we are right now in the messianic age, in the millennium, and that there will be no tribulation, that everything will be well. They cry out for peace when there's no peace. It also happens every time a major disaster comes and goes. When we see uh, everything restabilized, let's say the pandemic will come to an end soon, they would say again, peace has finally come again. The solution is that while we enjoy these moments of peace and security, we must remember that it is um, temporary and for his imminent coming and the tribulation are somewhere waiting in the horizon. And so to sum up this teaching in Deuteronomy 13, John the Apostle, who, who was at the end of his life and must have met so many of these individuals, ends the letters in 1 John with this great advice for us. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> See how, by the way, he links the knowledge of the Messiah with the advice against idolatry. What John is doing here is contrasting the true God 
with idols who are introduced by false teachers into the congregations of God. Our defense against false prophets and dreamers of dreams, again, is to know God. Now let's look at, now let's go into the next chapter, Deuteronomy 14. In these chapters are laws designed specifically to keep Israel sanctified. Once the important warning about false teachers is given, the laws found in this chapter and in the subsequent ones cover every aspect of the life of the Israelite, the way he eats, the way he dresses, so much so that the individual now belongs to God. He becomes God's property and is under the protection and the teaching of his own creator. And this is what we learn from verse 2, where we see these powerful words uttered by God. There he tells his people, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. A special treasure to me, God says. By the way, he speaks to Israel, but he speaks also to every single believer. You know, the Hebrew word for treasure here is segula. It speaks of one's very own possession. It refers to valuable properties such as silver and gold. The first time we see this word used by God for Israel, in fact, the first time we see it in the scriptures was at the birth of the nation of Israel in Exodus 19.6, just before the giving of the law. There we read, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be a special treasure, Segula, to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And I love the way, by the way, the Messiah himself brings out the motive of the treasure in the parable found in Matthew thirteen forty four, when he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It is the same treasure. Do you know the word the, in Greek is thesaurus for treasure, where we get our words uh, treasure, in fact. So in ancient Greek, a thesaurus is a place where things were stored, like a thesaurus, a place where we deposit things, like a warehouse. But what is, again, this treasure? We know that the treasure cannot be the church for the believers. You know, we, we, we're not hidden. On the contrary, we're called to be a light uh, to the world, like a bright city where people can come and find salvation. And as Yeshua said, the city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The church is in the next parable that is the costly pearl. So the hidden treasure cannot be the church and it cannot be the Lord himself. He also is not hidden. On the contrary, many times we're told to proclaim Yeshua's gospel. 2 Corinthians 2.12 we, we cannot hide him. We need to proclaim him. What then is the hidden treasure of God? It is Israel. Israel is indeed hidden from the nation today. as you know, uh, She is hidden from the nation of the world. As Paul said, Romans 11.25, we'll close with this verse. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Israel, today set aside, she's covered, she's hidden, that is the nation itself, until God works with the Gentiles, the nations of the world. Paul adds that it is in part, 
meros in Greek, meaning until a fixed time. Here we have it clearly laid down that Israel is not the church, but distinct from it, for Paul is speaking to the church itself. Until next time we meet, may the Lord greatly bless you. Don't I live?